You're listening to a sermon from Darabin Presbyterian Church. Visit us online for more resources or to get in touch. So Bible reading today is from John 21, verses 15 to 25. When they had finished eating, excuse me, when they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. Because of this, the rumor spread among the believers that this disciple would not die. But Jesus did not say that he would not die. He only said, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? This is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. Uh, Thanks a bit. If you don't know me, my name's Aaron. I'm also one of the pastors here at uh, DPC. Uh, There's a a little outline of my sermon with some of the key ideas on the uh, welcome card that Adam mentioned earlier. Uh, Especially if you're new, you might not know that. Uh, It could be useful for you to follow along with the flow of what I'm saying. It'd be great if you could have the passage open that Yvette has just read. Uh, And, yep, let's pray and ask for God's help. Gracious Father, please um, please do help me to speak your word faithfully and clearly. Uh, I pray, Father, uh, for all of us uh, that you would help us to listen to your word and be attentive to it, uh, be ready to receive it and trust it uh, and be changed by it for the glory of our Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, uh, I do wonder uh, what you think it is we should be trying to achieve as a church. Or what are we trying to achieve? What are we on about? Kind of thing? Like what's core business? What's our mission? What's our purpose as a church? Now, some of you might hear me start uh, like that by saying, what should we try and achieve as a church? And you're like, what do you mean, what are we trying to achieve? Like, isn't the church, isn't it more about just kind of gathering together to praise and worship God? Oh, I guess that's an achievement but not so much like 
Or isn't the church more about just kind of encouraging one another to keep hanging in there, trusting in Jesus, or being a community that genuinely loves one another and does our best to love our neighbours? Isn't the church more about being a place of spiritual rest where we can just come and be refreshed by God's grace to us in Christ? Well, well, what do you mean by what are we trying to achieve as a church? Isn't that too much about us being busy doing stuff? And there's some truth in that. And there's different purposes of the church. And we absolutely want DPC to be a church. And that is a place of genuine love for one another, where we encourage one another and support one another, where it is a place of spiritual rest, where people experience their life with us as a church family, as a place where they're refreshed in God's grace to them in Christ. We want all of that. And yet, that's not all that church is about. As we read the scriptures, we see that when God calls us to himself and we choose to follow him, he also calls us to commit together as followers of Jesus, as disciples of Jesus, to a particular mission. We're caught up in God's purposes in the world. And core to those purposes is making more disciples of Jesus, more followers of Jesus. It's kind of hard to miss it. If you read the biographies of Jesus' life, the Gospels, all of them end with this great call to send people out to see more people become followers of Jesus. So, for example, in Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, Jesus has been raised from the dead and he speaks to his disciples. Indeed, he commands them, saying, Go and make disciples of all nations baptising them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. This is Jesus raised from the dead, giving his church, as it were, their marching orders. This is your mission. This is what I'm sending you out into the world to do, to make more disciples of me. It's the same at the end of Mark's Gospel. It's a little bit of a debatable section of Mark's Gospel right at the end. But it fits with what the other gospel writers say in Mark chapter 16, verse 15, where Jesus, again raised from the dead, says to his disciples, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. And what's the aim of this? Verse 16, it's that people might believe. Whoever believes and is baptised will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. There's a lot at stake in this mission, preaching the good news about Jesus, that people would be saved, brought from life, uh, from death to life. It's the same at the end of Luke's gospel, Luke 24, Jesus is raised from the dead and he has a little Bible study with his disciples. He teaches them from the scriptures in Luke 24, verse 46, that the Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. Uh, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached to his name to all the nations, beginning first in Jerusalem. It's really hard to miss this theme of mission at the end of every biography of Jesus' life. Jesus sending his people out as a group into the world to make more disciples of him, more followers of him. And it's the same here at the end of John's gospel. Uh, Like lots of things, it looks a little bit different in John's gospel. It's not written in exactly the same way. Uh, But we saw last week that John 21 is about mission. It's about, if you remember last week, casting out the net of the gospel, the good news about Jesus. 
uh, in in the prayer, in the hope that our risen Lord Jesus would save, would draw in more people than we could ever hope or imagine. Like that catch of fish that the disciples got last week. This is the mission that we have to make disciples of Jesus, to see more people become followers of Jesus. But what does a follower of Jesus look like? And I think that's the question that John's answering in today's passage. What does a follower of Jesus look like? Remember John's purpose in his gospel? Uh, Chapter 20, verse 31, is that we might believe in Jesus. Believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in Jesus that we would find life. Life, that eternal life, life, a new kind of quality of life that starts right now and goes on forever with God and his people. That's John's purpose, that we would become believers in Jesus. But in all of the New Testament, to believe in Jesus and in John's Gospel, it's not just a kind of intellectual box-ticking thing. Oh, yeah, I came to believe in Jesus, you know, box-ticked. Believing in Jesus is an active thing. It's about following Jesus day by day, walking in the footsteps of Jesus. So in John's Gospel, to believe in Jesus is to follow Jesus. And we see it in today's passage. Twice Jesus says to Peter, follow me. It's where John's Gospel started back in chapter 1, where Jesus said to Philip, follow me. And so in today's passage, I want to unpack six characteristics of a follower of Jesus. What what does a follower of Jesus look like? You can see them there in the outline. The first characteristic in verses 15 to 17 is that a follower of Jesus is someone who knows that they've been restored from failure by Jesus. Let's kind of refresh our memories a little about where we're at in John 21. Uh, If you missed last week, Jesus is sitting on the shore of the Sea of Galilee uh, with seven of his disciples. Uh, His disciples have just been on a fishing trip. Uh, Jesus has lit a campfire on the shore. He's prepared some breakfast for them. Now, in this moment, as they sit around the campfire, I I honestly don't know. Like, I'm not trying to psychologise too much. I don't know what the Apostle Peter was thinking. Uh, But I do know what happened last time He was sitting around a campfire warming himself. You might want to flick back. It's the story that Gabby was referencing actually in, or I should say the G-Dog, in the uh, kids' spot in John chapter 18, verse 18. Uh, John told us uh, that it was cold uh, and the servants and officials stood uh, around a fire that they had made to keep themselves warm. Peter also was standing there with them warming himself at the fire. So the last time Peter sat around a fire warming himself because he was cold uh, was the moment when he failed Jesus dismally. He denied even knowing Jesus three times. So I don't know, but, but around this fire, perhaps with the memory of that failure still fresh in his mind, Jesus asks Peter in verse 15, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Uh, maybe it seems a little bit rough of Jesus to ask Peter such a, such a personal question in public, in front of these uh, six other disciples. Why didn't Jesus kind of pull him over to the side straight away and 
continue to have this conversation with Peter. But I think it's because Jesus knew that Peter had declared publicly in front of all the disciples, if you've read earlier in the Gospel, that even if the other disciples failed Jesus, he would never fail Jesus. He wasn't as you know, chicken as those guys. He was really committed to Jesus. And then Peter had publicly denied Jesus. So there might have been some question marks over Peter. What does Jesus think of Peter? Does Jesus want Peter to continue as part of his people and to have a leadership role in his people? Jesus knows that because Peter's failures were public, his restoration also has to be public. So that's why Jesus asked him the question, do you love me more than these, Peter? And there's a bit of debate about who then these are. Like, is he talking about the, you know, the bread or the fish that's cooking? I don't think he's talking about that. But, like, there's a bit of debate. Oh, I think Jesus is saying, do you love me more than these other disciples do? Which is not to say that Jesus is, is saying, Peter, if you're going to be acceptable to me, you have to love me more than any other disciple on the planet. Right? That's not what Jesus is saying. But again... He knows that Peter has made these bold declarations, essentially, of loving Jesus more than the other disciples. They might fall away, but I won't. Oh, so Jesus is, is confronting Peter with that. He's asking him, to th- asking him to think about that. And he's saying, Peter, despite all your past failures, are you still committed to trusting and following and loving me? And Peter says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Which is true. If you look in verse 17, Peter knows that Jesus is the Lord who knows all things. He was also there back in chapter 2 when John told us that Jesus doesn't need any person to tell them what's going on in his heart because Jesus knows what's truly going on in the heart of every person. Jesus knows that Peter loves him. He's convinced, and so he says to Peter, feed my lambs. We'll come back to that in a bit. That's uh, the kind of ministry that Jesus is calling Peter to, sending him out to do. Uh, So in verse 16, Jesus asks Peter again, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Why does Jesus ask Peter this question a second time? Is he kind of badgering Peter? No, he knows that Peter denied him three times. What's Jesus' purpose here? His purpose here is to confront Peter with the depths of his failure. Not to punish Peter, not to shame Peter, not to just humiliate Peter in front of the other disciples, but so that Peter would truly repent. So that Peter would truly understand and be filled with remorse at how he's failed Jesus And then would embrace Jesus' love and grace and mercy as Jesus restores him, not just to himself, but to his people too, and to a role of leadership amongst his people. Jesus knows that unless Peter first faces up to the fullness of his failure, he will never truly understand what it means to be forgiven and to be restored to God through faith in Christ. So in verse 17, Jesus asked Peter the same question, for a third time. And John tells us, yeah, maybe understandably, Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him this third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. 
And now, of course, some things about Peter's experience here are pretty unique to him, aren't they? None of us are apostles of Jesus, like um, maybe you're different, but I never saw Jesus uh, personally raised from the dead. He didn't send me out to speak and act on his behalf. I wasn't present when Jesus was on trial to deny Jesus three times. Like these are elements of Peter's experience that are unique to him, right? And yet Peter's experience here does give us a little bit of a glimpse of what it means for everyone to become a Christian. And that is to, to be a Christian, to be a follower of Jesus, is to have this experience of being restored from failure. It's to have the experience of Jesus confronting you with all your past failures. And not because, as I said, he wants to punish you or guilt you or humiliate you, but because he loves you. And he wants you to come back to him and confess your failure to him and embrace the fact that he died on the cross for every failure, every flaw, every weakness, every sin. Jesus died for all of that. And so that when we humbly come to him and confess our failure to him, he will indeed restore us to himself and to his people. So I don't know where everyone here is at today. Right? Maybe as we've been chatting about Peter's experience here, uh, the, the risen Lord Jesus, by the power of his spirit, has been opening your eyes to see your failure. Right? Maybe you, you're starting to, to grapple with uh, how much of your life you've spent ignoring Jesus or rejecting Jesus, running away from Jesus. Maybe thoughts are coming into your mind of the times when you, like Peter, have denied Jesus or let Jesus down in some way. Again, let me say, if Jesus is opening your eyes to see your failure like that, it's not to make you go around with a ball and chain of guilt and shame for the rest of your life. It's so that you would come to him and freely admit, Jesus, I constantly let you down. I know that. Please forgive me. I praise you, Jesus, that you died on the cross for my every failure. I praise you that through faith in you, I can be restored to God and to his people. Right? This is what it means to be a follower of Jesus, to know that you have been restored from failure by Jesus. And as someone who's restored from failure by Jesus, uh, Peter is commissioned uh, for ministry by Jesus. Uh, we've kind of skipped over this in verses 15 to 17. But those three times where Peter affirms his love for Jesus and then Jesus says, feed my lambs, take care of my sheep uh, and feed my sheep. Right? Peter uh, isn't just being restored to his relationship with Jesus and his people. Uh, he's also being commissioned for a particular ministry to Jesus and his people. And it, the language here is a bit weird, uh, but in the Bible, this language of sheep and lambs and feeding, it's about shepherding and caring for God's people. And notice who the people are that Peter is to care for. They're not his people, are they? Now, these people are Christ's sheep. They're Christ's precious lambs, who apart from Peter's ministry might be vulnerable. Well, it's important to remember that the people of God don't belong to any particular one of us. They belong to Christ. This is a lesson for Peter. And the way that Peter is to care for these people, these precious sheep and lambs of God that have been entrusted to Peter, is primarily by feeding them. 
feeding them the word of God that they might be built up and grow in their faith. Now again, Peter's experience here is pretty unique. I've never had a personal chat with Jesus where he commissioned me to be an apostle, to speak words that would actually be written down in the Bible. That's not part of our experience, is it? But what is part of our experience is that when you're restored from failure by Jesus, uh, he does send us out to serve him in different ways. That's part of the Christian life. Ephesians 2, verses 8 to 10, talks about how the fact fact that we've been saved by grace through faith in Christ, uh, but then as new creations in Christ, Jesus has prepared good works in advance for us to do. Every single Christian who puts their faith in Jesus Christ has particular works, particular service that Jesus calls them to. Now, of course, that service is going to look different in different seasons of life. Uh, it's going to, we're going to have different capacities to serve in different seasons of life. Sometimes we'll have lots of time, other times not so much. Sometimes more energy, sometimes less. That's fine. But I don't think that changes the fact that the normal pattern of the Christian life is that those who have been restored from failure by Jesus are also sent out to serve by Jesus. So to follow Jesus is to walk a path of service. But in verses 18 to 19, we see that in the context of his service, Peter is also destined to suffer for Jesus. There is verse 19, uh, verse 18 rather. Uh, Jesus says to Peter, uh, Very truly I tell you, uh, when you were younger, uh, you dressed yourself uh, and you went where you wanted to. Uh, But when you're old, Peter, uh, you will stretch out your your hands uh, and somebody else will dress you and lead you to where you do not want to go. Maybe a little bit cryptic. Yes. And so in verse 19, John kind of explains a little bit. He says, Jesus said this uh, to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And then he said to him, notice this, follow me. So before Peter followed Jesus, Jesus is saying, Peter, you remember, before you followed me, when you were younger, uh, you were kind of your own man. You called the, own shots, your, your, uh, the shots of your own life. Uh, If you wanted to dress in a particular way, that's how you dressed. If you wanted to go to a particular place, that's where you went. That's that's what it was like before you followed me. Uh, But now that you're following me, I set the destiny of your life. And let me tell you, your destiny looks different as a follower of Jesus. Just as Jesus' destiny was to glorify his Father in heaven by suffering and dying on a cross, so also Peter's destiny is to glorify God one day by suffering and dying on a cross. John's a gospel that's been full of all the talk of the blessings that come from believing in Jesus, from following Jesus. There are countless blessings. But Jesus also wants Peter to count the cost of following him. One day, the path of following Jesus is going to lead to his arms being stretched out on a cross being crucified like Jesus, his Lord. And that's exactly what happened. Like You can Google it later on, read up on your history. About 30 years after this conversation with Jesus on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, Peter was crucified under the reign of the Roman Emperor Nero. 
crucified, hands stretched out on a cross. As many reports say, though, that Peter uh, insisted on being crucified upside down because he didn't think he was worthy to die in exactly the same way as Jesus. But Peter was sent out to serve for Christ and he was destined to suffer for Christ. Again, not all of us have been personally told by Jesus, like Jesus has not kind of called me up and said, Aaron, I want you to know, one day you're literally going to be crucified. But I suspect none of us here are followers of Jesus have had that sort of conversation. But Jesus is clear in other Gospels uh, that to become a Christian is to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow him. It's to count the cost of following him. Right? Self-denial, Jesus says, is a part of Christian Discipleship 101. It's understanding that from now on, once you follow Jesus, you surrender your will and desires to the will and desires of Jesus. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Uh, to be a follower of Jesus always involves taking up your cross. It's not usually a literal cross here in Australia, but it is a cross of dying to yourself and being committed to living for Christ. Sharing in the sufferings of Christ, as we just sung, those words that are so easy to sing. I will lose my life, Lord, and find it in you. That's what I choose. I choose to lose my life, Lord. And find it in you. This is the path of the Christian life. Destined to suffer for Christ. And of course we'll only be prepared to walk that path if you have a real personal relationship with Christ in which you're personally obedient to Christ. And I think that's what that strange kind of little interchange is about in verses 20 to 23. Take a look in verse 20. Jesus has just said to Peter, Hey Peter, one day you're going to be crucified. That's your destiny. Uh, so in verse 20, uh, uh, John remembers that Peter turned around and saw that uh, the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. Now, I've made the case previously, not going to go into it here, that this disciple whom Jesus loved is John himself who's writing this gospel. So John, uh, so Peter sees that John, uh, by this stage, Peter and, and Jesus must have wandered away a little bit from the campfire. Peter sees that John's tagging along behind. And so Peter says to Jesus, hey, what about him? You know, I'm going to be crucified for the sake of following you. What about John? It seems like a, a pretty reasonable question for someone who's just heard they're going to be crucified one day. Uh, but notice how Jesus responds in verse 22. Uh, if I want him, that is John, to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. What does Jesus say? He says, mind your own business, Peter. Not quite, but that's basically, what is that to you? Your job, Jesus says, is to choose to follow me yourself. Don't worry about those other people. You decide if you want to follow me. And then your job is to be personally obedient to the path that I'm calling you on, to the service that I'm calling you to, and to the suffering and sacrifice that I'm calling you to. Don't you worry about John. And this is, a, you know, a part of the life of every follower of Jesus. Broadly speaking, every follower of Jesus is called to serve him and is called to suffer for his sake. 
but the precise details of what that service is going to look like and what that suffering is going to look like is something that we have to work out between us and Jesus. Listening to Jesus, being personally obedient to Jesus and his call in our lives. And the main way that, I mean, Jesus can speak to us in other ways, but the main way he promises to speak to us is in his word, which I think is where verse 24 fits in. We see in verse 24 that a true follower of Christ is convinced about the testimony, convinced of the testimony about Christ. Notice verse 24, John says, uh, this is the disciple, the, the disciple whom Jesus loved, this is the disciple who testifies to these things. He's the witness of these things. This is the Apostle John. And what does John say? And he wrote his testimony down in his gospel. And we know that his testimony is true. So part of being a follower of Jesus is being convinced that the witness, the account, the testimony of apostles like John about Jesus is actually true. Well, what's John's testimony about Jesus? Well, it's things like Jesus is the eternal Son of God, the eternal Word of God, who took on flesh. Well, that's part of John's testimony about Jesus. What's his testimony in John 1 to 12? It's that Jesus came to give us glimpses of God's glory by performing seven miraculous signs. That's John 1 to 12. But Jesus came, John 13 to 17, to show us the fullness of God's glory by being lifted up on a cross in our place, dying as the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. This is all John's testimony. John 21, his testimony, John 20 and 21, is that he and Peter turned up at Jesus' tomb and it was empty. And Jesus appeared to he and the other apostles three times, proving that he'd been raised from the dead. This is John's testimony, and John is saying that if you believe his testimony, uh, sorry, to be a follower of Jesus, you must believe that his testimony is true. You've got to be convinced of that. Not that you never have any questions, you never have any doubts, not that there aren't things that you find hard to stomach or hard to hear, of course. But to be a follower of Jesus is to be convinced that the central things are true. That Jesus really is the Son of God. That he really did give his life for you and for your sins on the cross. That he really did on the third day come back to life. And to give you life now and life forever. A follower of Jesus is convinced of the testimony about Jesus. And John's testimony of Jesus, uh, the heart of his testimony, as I kind of alluded to just before, uh, is to show us God's glory in Jesus. And John, in the last verse of his gospel, uh, is very clear uh, that the glory of Jesus that he's shown us in his gospel uh, is just a taste, just a little snippet of the full glory of Jesus. Jesus' glory goes far beyond anything that John has included in his gospel. It's limitless. Take a look at verse 25. John says, Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have enough room for the books that would be written. Now, I think John's... Uh, exaggerating a little bit there, but you get his point. 
He's saying, in my gospel, yes, my intention has been to show you Jesus' glory, at least enough of Jesus' glory that you would believe in him and find life in knowing him. That's been my purpose. And yet I'm so conscious, John is saying, that I've just given you a tiny glimpse of Jesus' glory. And if I showed you everything about the glory of who Jesus was, it would be limitless. It would be boundless. It would fill the whole world because the glory of who Jesus is and what he has done for us and what he's going to prepare for us is indeed limitless. And we've seen in this passage and throughout John's gospel that in this life, the path of a follower of Jesus is one of service and suffering and sacrifice. Yes, there's joy in that sacrifice. There's delight in the sacrifice, but there is service and suffering and sacrifice. But in John 14, Jesus assured us that he's going away to prepare a different place for us. A place not of suffering, but of glory. A new heavens, a new earth full of limitless beauty and majesty and glory. And we know from other parts of the Bible that the glory of Jesus himself will be right at the centre of that place. And the heart of a follower of Jesus is someone who's committed to enjoying and exploring the glory of who Jesus is and what he's prepared for us, uh, not just today, but forevermore. That's where John lends his gospel. It reminds me, Ada and I have, uh, in the past few years, read the Chronicles of Narnia. And if you know the Chronicles of Narnia, the last book is uh, The Last Battle. The final chapter of the last battle, Aslan finally lets all his followers in to the glorious land that he's prepared for them. The land that Narnia was just a shadow of. It's an incredible place. And as all the the followers of Aslan are flocking into this land, uh, one of Aslan's unicorns says this. He says, I have come home at last. Uh, This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land that I've been longing for all my life, even though I never knew it until now. And then this kind of unicorn who's running into the land with all the people of Aslan's followers around him calls out to the others and he says, come further in and come further up. He says it over and over again, come further in and come further up. Explore the limitless glories of what Aslan has prepared for us. That's what he's saying. Don't be content to dilly-dally around the entrance. Come further in and further up. Dive right in to the full glory. And that's what John's saying. In my gospel, I've just given you a glimpse, a little appetizer of what Christ has prepared for us. And the heart of a follower of Jesus is someone who's committed to enjoying and exploring the limitless glories of Christ and the glories of what he's prepared for us. This isn't just what church is about, but it is part of what church is about. It's part of what we're trying to achieve together, to work together as a local church to see more and more people become followers of Jesus. Followers of Jesus who have been restored from failure by Christ, who know that they've been commissioned to serve by Christ, that they're destined to suffer for Christ. Followers of Jesus who are personally obedient to Christ, 
who were convinced about the testimony about Christ and who love Jesus, who want to enjoy and explore the limitless glories of him and all that he's prepared for us. But this is part of what we're on about as a church. Casting out the net of the gospel, humbly admitting to Jesus that apart from you we can do nothing, but praying together, working together, that Jesus might give us the joy of seeing more and more people become followers of him. So please join me in in prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for the Apostle John and this uh, journey that we've taken over many weeks through his gospel. And we thank you that his desire uh, is that we would read his gospel and believe in Jesus, your son, and find life in knowing him. I think we would give expression to our belief by trusting him and following him, walking in his footsteps. Oh, Lord God, I pray that for those of us uh, here who may not yet be followers of Jesus, I pray that you might move in their hearts, even in this moment, uh, to confess their failures to Jesus, uh, knowing that he has died on the cross for all of their sin, that they might find freedom and forgiveness and restoration in him. And I pray, Father, for those of us who are already committed to this path of following Christ, that as we look at these characteristics of a follower of Jesus, we would seek by your grace to do the ministry that you've called us to, that we would be prepared to embrace the suffering of the path ahead, whatever it might be. We pray, Father, in particular, that you would help us to dive right in and enjoy and explore the limitless glories of Christ your Son and all that he's prepared for us. In his name we pray. Amen.